0: Welcome to the pro-life team podcast. I'm Jacob Barr. I'm here with Ken and we're going to be talking about peacemaking from within your clinic, within your relationships and family, and even all the way to the sidewalk of an abortion clinic. Uh, Ken, I'm excited to have you on the pro-life team podcast. Would you introduce yourself as if you were talking to a small group of executive directors of pregnancy clinics?
1: Sure. Uh, First of all, thank you for having me, Jacob. Uh, My name is Ken Sandy. I'm the founder of Peacemaker Ministries and RW360. Uh, My time at Peacemaker Ministries, about 30 years, was dedicated to helping Christians resolve conflict out of court and actually teaching uh, peacemaking skills to keep people from even getting into a serious conflict. Uh, now I'm leading a ministry called RW360, and the primary focus of our training is what we call relational wisdom, which is a biblical form of emotional intelligence. And our goal now is what can we do to help people uh, stay upstream of conflict, actually avoid major conflicts, divorces, church splits, lawsuits, things like that. So we still teach peacemaking. We still do conciliation, but our main, main goal is teaching relational skills. Okay.
0: So, what sort of advice um, do you find yourself um, giving um, people who work at a pregnancy clinic? Like, what kind of advice do they often seek or need?
1: Well, to me, I, I've been involved with uh, crisis pregnancy centers for many, many years. Was on the board of directors one here in Billings, Montana, years ago, and have been working with many people working in centers since then. Uh, I, th- I guess the most foundational thing I would say is their work is all about Relationship, and yes, there are technical issues. They need to have. They need to get their rent and their accounting and all their computers running properly. There's technical issues to be sure, and even the technical issue of having an ultrasound machine. There's medical issues, and you certainly want well-trained medical personnel doing a lot of the tests and and the advising. But when it really comes down to it, the work in a uh, pregnancy center is really all about relationship. Is building trust. We call gaining passport. What gives me the right to enter into someone else's life, especially the most personal and and life changing parts of their life. Mm -hmm. Um, So how do we build, build trust? How do we uh, really enhance our capacity for empathy and compassion? Uh, Many of the people that come into a pregnancy center, like many other places in life where people come for help, the presenting issue is not always the real issue. The presenting issue can be, you know, I'm, I've missed a period. I think I might be pregnant. Uh, that's a presenting issue, but the deeper one is I don't want to lose my boyfriend. I don't want to be ashamed in my church. I don't want my parents to, uh, you know, disown me. And those are the deeper underlying issues. It's it's like an iceberg. What you see of an iceberg above the water is just a fraction of the t- total iceberg. What's below the water is much deeper. So, I always talk to people about relational skills, empathy, peacemaking, uh, emotional intelligence, reading body language, trying to put yourself in the other person's position, uh, those kinds of things. So, it's all about relationship. It's all about re- even lawsuits, frankly, are usually all about relationship. Interesting.
0: Um, are there any particular scenarios that sometimes have come up, you know, frequently or, you know, come up occasionally that like when it comes to, you know, what what might, what, what's an example of how a pregnancy clinic might need a peacemaker? You
1: know, it can happen on on several dimensions, Jacob, just give you a, sort of a broad spectrum. Uh, many pregnancy centers uh, have a board of directors and they've got a board who are volunteer people typically, often a paid executive director and maybe one or two paid staff and then a lot of volunteers. That's a lot of relational circles. Add to that, some some centers have got supporting churches with pastors who care about pro-life, but they also want things done in a particular way. And they, they want certain positions and certain counseling and everything else. So you've got a myriad of potential relational conflicts within the, the circles involved around a pregnancy center. We're not even talking yet about the clients, about the young woman walking through the door. Just within the clinic itself, we've done quite a few mediations of tensions and conflicts between those various levels of authority and responsibility. So teaching the staff and the board and the supporting church pastors, all those people, some basic relational skills, empathy, managing their emotions, how to do peacemaking, uh, negotiation skills, forgiveness, uh, all those things. The more you weave those skills into the all the people within the clinic, the more smoothly the clinic will operate. And just a simple analogy, relational wisdom and peacemaking is like the lubricating oil in a car engine. Um, it's not something you think about much of the time, but if it's not there, you find out real quickly. You know, if, you're, if you lose all your lubricating oil in your car, that engine will seize up. If the people in your clinic don't have good relational skills, peacemaking skills, it will eventually seize up. So that's that's one sphere, just within the the clinic itself. Then you start looking at the people they're serving. So you've got a young woman coming in. There's a man involved somewhere, maybe a husband, a boyfriend, uh, maybe putting pressure on her to do something that violates her conscience. Um, when I was at the CareNet conference recently, I talked to somebody who said that some of the recent studies indicate that the Abortion rate among young evangelical women may actually be higher than the population involved uh, in large because of the potential shame. You know, I'm a Christian. The people in my church may reject me or judge me. So there might be some added inducement that is stronger than someone's basic faith about the, the terrible act of taking a baby's life. So you've got the young woman with all the things going on side of her. You've got a, a young man somewhere in the picture. You often have parents, extended friends. There's a whole sphere of circles. Uh, just think of throwing a pebble into a pond. The ripples go out further and further and further. So how you engage them, how you develop passport, how you help her understand her, her real motives. And of course, a big part of counseling in those situations is to realize that that what's driving things mostly is emotion. It's, it's not logic. It's not reasoning. We try to use, you know, logic and reasoning to justify and advance what we want to do emotionally. But until people start realizing that most of what they're doing is motivated by emotions, you're going to continue to miss what's really going on. It's like a sailor out in a boat and it keeps flopping all around. He doesn't realize he's being pushed around by the wind. If he thinks it's just fish under the boat pushing it, thinking anywhere. He's got to realize, no, there's a strong wind, it's blowing me up on the rocks, and I need to do something about it. So
0: So do you provide this peacemaking service remotely? Like like is your group able to support pregnancy clinics across the country or what does that look like for someone actually getting help? Is it normally in person or is it sometimes provided remotely?
1: Yeah. We actually provide uh a training globally. We've got people in about 70 countries downloading our training and taking it online. Uh our all of our basic training is online. And you can also, like some uh uh pregnancy centers might order a group study set, for example, with all the videos on a DVD set or a flash drive, and then they just do maybe one hour of training a week with their volunteers and staff. So they can We we want to make them as self-sufficient as they can be, providing resources they can use that are very um, user-friendly for them to use. But at the same time, we do provide uh, coaching um, uh, via Zoom. So if a clinic director calls me up and says, I'm locked in a major conflict with the chairman of our board, or there's someone on our staff or a volunteer that's causing all sorts of grief, what do I do? Uh, I can assign a conflict coach or conciliator to meet with that person, hear the story, and basically give them advice on here's some things you can do to go back and try to resolve this thing yourself. And over the years, I've been doing this for about 40 years, you know, when people come to us and they think initially I need a mediator, our first Mm -hmm. approach is, well, help us to understand what's going on. And perhaps we can give you some advice that you can use to go back to the other person. And just between the two of you, you might be able to resolve this. And of course, that's consistent with Matthew 18, 15. If there's an issue, Jesus knows that one-on-one is the better way to resolve it, if possible. So we'll coach somebody on how to go to the other person and try to resolve. If that doesn't work, we can actually do Zoom mediations, have both parties get onto a Zoom call, and we can actually walk them through, you know, what are the issues? What, you know, what's your position? What are some of the benefits of this? Can you see why that other person did this? As basically the same way we would do a live mediation, and then we, we actually have a network of conciliators all around the country. And so we very often can find somebody who's within an hour's drive of a clinic who they can actually retain a, a certified conciliator to come and sit down with their board, with their staff, with whoever might be involved. So we want to make it as cost effective and as accessible to the clinics as possible, but we can deliver as much help as, as they need.
0: Can you expand on the reference in? Was it Matthew eighteen fifteen? Is that what you said? Yeah. Can you expand on uh, that story um, and how it how it connects with um, yeah the peacemaking work?
1: Yeah, it's uh, Matthew eighteen. It's it's often just referred to as Matthew eighteen, and it's basically verses fifteen through twenty. Although I like to start back at verse twelve, and verse twelve starts off it gives you the context. If a, if a, If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, does he not leave the 99 to go and seek after the one that wandered away? And it sets the context. The whole passage is about reconciliation, restoration, rebuilding relationships. So that's the context. In verse 15, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go to him just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you've won your brother over. So it's the idea, if you see someone doing something, that is either hurting another person, hurting the offender himself, um, just creating some problems. The the preferred thing is to go and sit down one-on-one so there's not a lot of face-saving issues. There's not, con- you know, constituency of trying to look good in front of my supporters, but just sit down. And we do a lot of coaching on how to do that. And one of the most important things is, is to realize you may be misreading the situation. So to always go tentatively, you know. Jacob, I heard you say this the other day, I'm concerned it might mean this, but I'd really love to hear your side of it because there's probably things going on I don't understand. And you may have a very reasonable explanation why something happened. I go, oh, wow, I can see that now. How can I support you? So instead of coming to you and say, boy, I saw this the other day, and how could you as a Christian do this and jump right to a conclusion? Which sadly is something a lot of Christians seem to like doing is jump jumping right to judge judgments. So that's the first step is one-on-one. And 80% of whatever came to our ministry is resolved just by coaching individuals how to talk to each other. It's, it's amazing how, how frequently those resolutions take place if people have some good coaching. But Jesus knows that's not always the case. And so he goes on in the next verse, If he will not listen to you, take one or two others along so that everything may be witnessed by, uh, confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. It's the idea of bringing one or two other people to sit down with you, both to listen to the facts, ask questions to clarify things and say, okay, now Jacob, do I understand you to say this? And could you tell Ken why this may have happened? And, and basically they're sort of more objective in the situation, drawing out information, possibly offering some advice, um, well, Jacob, would you consider doing this? Is this an option? Or what are a couple of ways you think it could be resolved? And they're basically, they're trying to facilitate a conversation that may have started off with just two rigid positions, you know, a board chair saying the executive director's got to go. She's just not competent. And the, and the executive director said, I don't want to lose my job. Like i Mike, you need to leave the board. And so here's two locked in positions to begin with that could turn into just a power struggle and a tug of war. A mediator, this one or two other people that comes and sits down, could say, now, why do you think she's not competent? Why do you think the board chair is not this? What can be done here? Where where can we clear up misunderstandings? How could you learn to work with each other? And of course, that's throughout the Bible. You look throughout the Bible, there's people in conflict, and often someone else, a wise person, comes and meets with them and helps them to work out their differences and continue working together. So that's what we call mediation. Um, but Jesus knows even that may not work at times. So in verse 17, He says, "If He will not listen to them, the one or two witnesses, tell it to the church." And now we're talking about formal church discipline, bringing in the ecclesial ecclesiastical authority of the church. So this might be, a, you know, taking it out of the um, crisis pregnancy center, just a business context where someone's involved in some. You know, arguably dishonest business practices, making commitments, not keeping his word, possibly defrauding people. Church leaders should be concerned about that, that here's someone who's a member of First church, and yet he's getting a reputation in the community of being a crook, and to sit down and really challenge him on that. I've been involved in those cases where where somebody really was being dishonest, was dishonoring God, uh, diminishing the witness of the church and community, and thank God the leaders got involved. In some cases, God used him to bring that person to repentance, making restitution to the people he'd wronged. And in other cases, they hardened their heart. And that goes on to the next verse, verse 20. Uh, if you will not listen to them, treat them as you would a, pe- a pagan or a tax collector. And that's formal church discipline and excommunication, which doesn't happen often these days. Most churches are, are afraid to go that far. And if you do the other steps well, you rarely get to that point. But it's still a potential thing where somebody is removed from church fellowship. But it's basically a procedural passage. You want to keep things as small as possible, as long as possible. So starting one-on-one, then maybe one or two other people, and then you slowly build, build it up from there. So that would be, for example, a, a conflict between, as I said, an executive director, board chair that can't work it out, maybe there's someone else on the board or a pastor in the community they both respect. And they just say, Hey, can we sit down? We'd love to have your advice on this. Or they call us and we provide a, a professionally trained person to help them.
0: Is it sometimes hard to find someone who is respected by the other party as well? Or like trying to find that common trusted person?
1: It, it can be. And this is one of the reasons, Jacob, why we recommend that people make a commitment to a conciliation process before a conflict comes up. Because okay. if, 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 if two people get a conflict, let's say you and I had a conflict and then I came to say, hey, Jacob, I heard about this group called Peacemaker, i to go to them. Your first instinct is going to be, oh, yeah, right. You want to bring them in. So they must be on your side. So I don't want it. And so if you wait till yeah. there's a conflict for one party to suggest it, it'll be suspect, But if when you're first, for example, if every crisis pregnancy center today, you know, went to our website, looked at the the information on combining conciliation clauses, um, they could say, hey, we're going to add this to our bylaws. And we're going to just say that if there's a conflict that we can't resolve internally, rather than, you know, take extreme measures and go to court, we will contact RW360 and ask them to provide a conciliator to work with us. So it's agreed on when everybody's getting along. And so it's just it's there. And, you know, just to give me an example, I was talking to a Christian architect and he told me that he for years and years, he had averaged the filing of at least one significant lawsuit a year because of his work as an architect, some dissatisfied customer. And some of them actually occasionally went to trial, but at least there was a filing, negotiation, legal fees, et cetera. He said, ever since he put a conciliation clause in all of his contracts, he said, I haven't had a lawsuit filed since then, because simply remembering that we committed, if there's a conflict, we're going to resolve it biblically, gets me and the and the church to say, oh, hold it now, we're mad at each other, but we agreed not to go to court, let's sit down and talk this through. And he said, normally what he does, he calls up the, the church and said, let's, the pastor says, let's go and have lunch, let's talk this through, he resolves it. Now, that's bad news for attorneys because they're not getting big, you know, attorney's fees for those cases. But the architect was real happy just having the clause in there reminded him we're going to resolve this in a a conciliatory way.
0: So how might a pregnancy clinic, I'm imagining like when a when a board member signs on for a two year term or the length of the term, that's probably a really good piece to have as part of that uh, onboarding of a new staff member or board member or volunteer, perhaps even, or any position that might, um, yeah, merit uh, a peacemaker clause that we're going to, yeah, peacefully decide now that we're all, you know, there is no problem, that when a problem does arise, we'll, yeah, go about this in a healthy biblical way.
1: Right. Yeah, they could. And there's a lot of ways to do that. You can put a legally binding contract or clause into your con, your uh, bylaws, for example. And that's that's legally binding if someone tries to sue it. But even short of a legally binding thing, you could just put in a statement of commitment of intent. I mean, every board should have some guidelines. You better have some bylaws and things like that. And you could just simply put something in there saying if we have a conflict, we'll resolve it according to the Peacemakers Pledge which is found in Ken Sandy's book, The Peacemaker. And there's a, an appendix. It's just a very simple pledge that has four basic commitments. We call them the four Gs. When we resolve a conflict, goal number one is to be to glorify God. Goal number two is to get the log out of our own eye, take responsibility for our contribution. Goal number three is to gently restore. If I'm going to confront somebody, I'm going to do it gently with an idea of redemption and restoration. And goal number four is going to be reconciled. Call them the four Gs. And a lot of churches use that as a pledge in their membership classes. They, people pledge to follow those. I mean, those four Gs are right out of the Bible. They're basic peacemaking concepts. So you could put it in your, your um, organizational bylaws. You could put it into your employee or your volunteer manual for the center itself. Um, you could provide, you know, for, for what? $13, $14, you provide everybody in the clinic with a copy of my book, The Peacemaker, and just say, "This is these are principles we're going to follow if we're in conflict, and we want to just give this to you as a you know recognition of your volunteering. That's a big, that's a very worthwhile investment, you know, for $14, $15, and encouraging people to <whistles> go through it. <whistles> Pardon me, that's <whistles> my guard dog. <laughs> no problem. I hope you can edit that out. I just got, I just got yeah, a yeah, library. I like you're
0: getting a delivery. My dogs always do that when someone walks up the door.
1: That's he heard something. There's something up there waiting for him, obviously. And my wife is not here to calm him down. So sorry about that. Okay. Um, but anyway, there, you know, the other thing to do is just come to our website. We've got a lot of training options there uh, at all sorts of levels. And I'll, I'll tell you what, what the, uh the, the highest level, what I would strongly recommend, I did this at the Care Net Conference, is to actually form what we call a peace sower team within the pregnancy center. And what a peace sower team is, it's its, it's modeled after um, Exodus 18, where when Moses led the, the nation of Israel out of Egypt, he was trying to resolve all the conflicts for the whole nation all by himself. And he was burning himself out. So his father-in-law said, no, you need to delegate. You need to have some other people helping you out. And so they found other wise and respected people to take on a lot of that responsibility. So same thing in a clinic. And the team, what we recommend, we've developed materials where you could train one or two people to be what we call relational wisdom instructors. And they're responsible for just teaching new people coming in, refreshments, you know, refreshing people's memory of these things, because we do tend to forget things over time. So the instructors just keep training. The coaches are there just to talk to individuals. If someone's got a conflict and they need some advice on how to handle it, they come to one of the RW coaches. And then the conciliators, that's the highest level of training, are people who are actually trained as mediators. And they can actually sit down with two parties, identify issues, walk them through a conversation process to find agreement. And our goal—we're we're training, setting up these teams in churches, parachurch ministries, Christian-owned businesses. It's to use an analogy. It's like in Montana, we have a lot of rural communities that don't have uh, enough of a tax base to have full-time fire—you know, fire departments. So what do they do? They get volunteers who get trained on how to put out fires, and they carry a pager around. And if a fire starts, they run down to the firehouse, open the door, hop in the truck go out and put out the fire, but they're not full-time. They're out ranching and farming most of the time. So the same thing in a clinic, you can get volunteers who are trained in these skills who are available when the fires of conflict come out. And one of the benefits is a lot of people do go after the training or people say, I can use this in the other part of my life. I'm a manager down at a local business, and these are things I'm dealing with all the time. So this training is it's a win-win for me.
0: That's awesome. Uh, yeah, it makes sense that these principles would apply in all, all relationships, not just the ones within the clinic.
1: Um, yeah, not, not only I guess, that, I, I, yeah. I would just say the place where I've applied these principles the most is my family. I mean, just oh okay, get, get a couple of teenagers and you'll have to learn about negotiation and peacemaking and arbitration. <laughs> my wife always called herself a domestic arbitrator. So that's where my, all my best stories come from is my own family.
0: So when it comes to negotiating, you know, what's, I guess the alternative to negotiating would be like all or nothing, like someone that's not willing to, um, to, you know, land somewhere in the middle between two people's wants. What does the Bible? Like, how does the Bible speak to negotiating versus all or nothing? And yep. like, what would be like the right example to negotiate? And then the right example, maybe to hold an all or nothing position sure. if there is one.
1: You know, we would certainly need to hold an all-or-nothing uh, position on things that the Bible teaches are all-or-nothing. Murder is wrong. Um, I'm not going to compromise my position of being pro-life, that, that that unborn child is a human being made in the image of God. I'm not going to compromise that. Uh, I know that at a legislative level, probably there will have to be compromises at you know what time and everything else. So there, there will be necessity there. But in terms of things we do day to day, If the Bible is is clear and explicit on something, we can't compromise. But the vast majority of conflicts in life are not black and white issues. Um, It might be, do we hire a new assistant director for the clinic? Okay, the Bible doesn't speak to that. Um, Do we expand the board? Do we do this training for people? Do we take this position in our counseling? And what we want to do, there's, there's several really good examples of negotiation narratives in the Bible. First Daniel 1, where Daniel basically has to negotiate with his captors about the dietary, um, the diet they're imposing on the Jewish um, people they brought into uh, Babylon. And he negotiates very effectively, uh, to, so he doesn't have to violate his, his religious beliefs, dietary beliefs, but he's able to still accomplish what the king really wants, is to have healthy servants. Another, probably the preeminent negotiation example in the Bible, would be 1 Samuel 25. And this is where Abigail basically is facing David and 400 men who are about to slaughter everybody on the farm. And this one woman stands up to David and negotiates a settlement that saves his reputation and the lives of dozens of people. It's, she's like the preeminent negotiator and negotiating of Scripture. But the principle in all of those cases, both the ones I just gave you and in real life, is laid out pretty well just in, first, um, in Philippians 2, 3, and 4, where Paul says, each of you should look, um, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Be willing to listen to the other person and recognize he may have a better idea than I do. If I just listen, he he might actually give me some better insights. But then it goes on. It says, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, it doesn't say forget your interests, just give up everything. It says you can look out for your interests, but at the same time, Find a way to look out for the interests of the other person as well. And that's the most effective negotiation, not only in a clinic. This goes on with international diplomacy today. The most effective diplomats are the ones that understand, okay, what is the interest of this this country? What is the interest of the country I'm serving? And how do we find an agreement where both sides can actually say, that's something I can support? And so I, I study negotiation all the time. It's fascinating the people that are really good at it. So the, the best negotiator is the one that can understand the other person's interest sometimes even better than the other person understands his own interest, And that's what Abigail does. She understands David's interest even better than he does because he's being what's called amygdala hijacked. His emotions are just driving him and he's not thinking rationally at all. And Abigail discerns what's going on, reminds him of what his real interests are, settles the whole thing. So it's one of my favorite topics to to teach on. And we use an acrostic called the Pause principle, prepare, affirm relationships, understand interests, search for creative solutions, and evaluate options objectively and, and creatively. And we teach that to thousands and thousands of people every year. Hmm.
0: So out of all the people that come, you know, that are, that are seeking out a peacemaker, you know, how, what per you know, how, how do you rank a given scenario or problem? Is it based off of, you know, like a scale of one to 10 or, you know, are there some that you would say you don't need a peacemaker? This isn't, you know, this isn't at that level or what would be like, you know, the you know, the smallest problem that would deserve a peacemaker, like how would you sort of define, you know, whether a peacemaker is needed or not when it's on sort of on the smaller numbers on that yeah. scale?
1: You know, it's not so much the size of the dispute, so to speak. It's about how teachable the parties are. And, okay. you know, I've talked to people that had, you know, a $5 million contract dispute. And yet, as I talked to one of them and, and helped him to realize, yeah, yeah, I was sort of vague on this. And I did promise this. I can see why the other guy is unhappy. And say, well, why don't you go back to him and just, you know, approach him on that thing. So the the monetary size you can have a ten dollar dispute where people are locked in and rigid and they won't budge. Um, it may not be worth bringing a mediator for ten dollars, but it's really not so much the size of the dispute as it is about how teachable the parties are. And what I look for okay. is is there humility where people are willing to say, you know, I I might not be reading this entirely accurately. So humility and then flexibility. Is you know, am I open to changing some of my ways and teachability? And so if you got humility, teachability, and flexibility, it's th- those those situations are usually very easy to help people work through. But those yeah. are those are character quality. And that's why we back up our mediation a lot with prayer, because when I come into a dispute, people are usually pretty rigid and pretty self-righteous. And we need the Holy Spirit to soften some hearts.
0: Yeah, I can see that going back to the abortion topic and, you know, how it's, you know, how we have to, well, we live in a country with, I don't know, some percent of people that don't believe in God and Jesus. And we're trying to live civilly amongst them along with Mm -hmm. fellow believers. So there's some groups that will, they're like abolitionists where they sort of want all or nothing. Mm -hmm. um, And that's, and I can see, you know, I can see the desire to do really good and not try and compromise. But then I can also see it seems like the mainstream or the you know a large number of pro life groups are trying to save as many lives as possible. And in the midst of living in a civil country that's full of a large number of people who don't agree, you know, and we're trying to save as many lives as possible. So how do you navigate those waters? between you know the abolitionist groups who are all or nothing and the people who want to compromise to save as many lives as possible and really yeah. in the end I think the group that wants to compromise would love to see abortion you know made unthinkable or unavailable right. um, but we're also trying yeah you know, at the same time trying to navigate the fact that we live in a country that's full of people who have different right. positions
1: right well, I, I certainly wouldn't pretend to have all the answers there, Jacob, uh, a, a couple of broad principles. First thing, I would encourage both of those sides, because you are run the same thing on, you know, sex education, schools. I mean, there's any number of moral issues where there's people that want it's all or nothing. They, they want zero of this bad thing happening. And other people say we're going to have to compromise. So any number of moral issues, you can have that um, that dichotomy. First thing I would say is try to avoid the temptation to judge other people who are on your side of the line, but maybe not as far or further than you are. So, you know, you may be an abolitionist. I'm more of a let's find a compromise. But for me to respect and say, listen, I understand why you why you have that position. And I respect and frankly, I wish your position would prevail. But practically speaking, I think this is the better thing. But for us not to judge each other and then start shooting arrows at each other. And that's one of the ways the enemy really weakens the church. He gets believers to to be shooting more at each other than we do at the true enemy, you know, Satan himself and all the lies he dispenses. So that's number one. Avoid the temptation to judge. One of the things we teach is the concept of charitable judgments. It's It's an old concept you don't hear a lot about, but it basically is when you have a set of facts that indicate someone else may have done something wrong, but it's not conclusive, believe the best about people until you have facts to prove otherwise. So instead of work, jumping to the worst possible conclusion, give them give them some charity and say, listen, I, I can see why you do that. It's not the position I would take. I think this is where we need to be. And I know there's even some strategic things that come up in negotiating these things, and that is if we if we reach a compromise of the other side, you know, at the eighty percent level, then we'll lose all the momentum to go to one hundred percent. And so there there's even legislative strategies that people can reasonably disagree on, and not necessarily right or wrong. You just have to decide which one will I follow. Um, secondly, in dealing with people on the other side, I found whether you're dealing with gender issues, sexuality issues any number of moral issues, I've found that there are some people who are extreme on the other side that no level of conversation and negotiation is going to budge them. They, they've got an agenda, they're going to push it, and every inch I give is just an inch they'll take and give nothing in return. So you have to realize, is this person that I'm dealing with um, resolute and unwilling to budge on anything? And I, I would, with that kind of person, I would have to be equally resolute on my position. But there's a much larger group I found in these categories um, who sincerely believe in their position, but they're not militant about it. They're not gonna just try to force this and cram it down. I mean, you'd look at the gay lesbian issue. You know, I just, I believe it's, you know, if people have that inclination, this is not my belief, but they would say, you know, I think it's, um, it's just an inclination and we just want to live in peace. We don't want to be discriminated against. So there's a lot of people that may be gay that aren't militant. They don't want to force through legislation. They don't want to shut down a wedding cake, uh, you know, business. And those are people you can actually talk to and dialogue. And they, they might say, you know, I never thought of it that way. I can see this. And so you have to discern. Am I dealing with somebody who is teachable, humble, flexible, or somebody who is resolute and militant. So trying to identify those two things. And I run into that when I travel in an airplane. If I'm talking to somebody about any of these issues, I try very quickly to figure out, am I dealing with somebody who is just militant on this issue, in which case there's not much point in going further? Or is this a person that if I ask some questions, they might get off this plane to be thinking about it, and say, oh, hmm, I have thought of it that way before. And that's one of the most powerful ways to engage the, um, the teachable people is not with a lecture, it's with a question. And with a question that will haunt them days after they've had their conversation with you.
0: When it comes to the group who is, let's say, hard and fast and militant, or they're not, looking, they're not soft or you know, teachable. What's the best approach for someone in that category? Would it be prayer or would it be
1: something else as well? I I would certainly pray because God, I mean, God seems to delight in say, okay, he looks around and say, okay, who who would everyone else say is impossible to change? Oh, there he is, this guy named Saul from Tarsus. And I'm going to change him into my apostle to the Gentiles. I mean, it's like the most extreme whiplash in the history of mankind. And so by all means, pray. Um, and the last chapter of my book, The Peacemaker, is overcoming evil with good. What do you do with people who will not negotiate, who will not repent, who will not forgive anything else? You don't close the Bible. Say, I tried it, close the Bible, do it my way. No, you dig deeper in the Bible because the Bible is filled with examples of dealing with resolute militant people. And one of the principles there is the, the last part of Romans 12, says do not be overcome by evil. No, it says if your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so the idea I've I've had situations where the, the final the final weapon we have sorry about the watchdog. It's okay. <laughs> okay. Where the final weapon is how can I bless and serve the other person. And do you have time for about a three-minute example of that? Sure, sure. Okay. A friend of mine um, lived in a, in a house. There was a gully behind the house with a stream in it and then a house on the other side. Two rows of houses separated by this little, this little gully and a stream. He got into a conflict with the, the homeowner across the stream about the boundary line, where it was, and used to run with the stream, but it changed course. And she was chopping down trees that he thought were his, they couldn't work it out. They got into a lawsuit about it. And he felt bad because he's a certified peacemaker. He called and said, Ken, I'm ashamed. I can't resolve this thing. I'm involved in a lawsuit. That's the last thing I want to do. And he was standing in his back patio one night, looking across the gully at the house over there. and He just said, Lord, I feel like such a failure. Show me what I can do. How can I somehow find a way of agreement and peace with my neighbor? And he said, literally at that moment, all the lights on the other side of the gully went out. There was a power outage. And the first thing that came to his mind was he'd been in her house one time when they were first trying to talk. She had this huge giant aquarium with all sorts of exotic fish in it. And it's just like he suddenly had a picture of that in his mind. He thought, wow, if she's without power and there's no aerator going, maybe it's going to harm her fish. Maybe she needs electricity. And he just wrestled for just a moment, but he just felt God telling him, take her electricity. And he ran out to his garage, got his extension cords, plugged them into the patio outlet in the back of his house, down the gully, across, up to her patio, had just enough to reach her patio, knocked on the door. She came out to the door holding a, you know, a candle or something. And she said, what do you want? He said, well, I saw your powers out. I was concerned. I was concerned for your fish. So I brought you some electricity. Aww. And she just, she just looked at this extension cord, and she didn't know what to do. I mean, it's just, if your enemy is hungry, give him something to eat if he's thirsty. And about three seconds later, Jacob, the electricity came on. And my friend said, Ken, if I had hesitated three seconds longer in obeying God, it would have been too late.
2: Yeah. And
1: so she looked at the extension cord. She said, well, the power's back on. I don't need it. He said, he still held it out to her. He said, well, it may go out again. You don't know. So why don't you just hold this on for the night? And she took that cord. And Rich said at that moment, he was overwhelmed with a sense of love for her. This whole thing about blessing your enemy isn't so much to make them love us. It's to help us love them. And wow. so he went back, slept like a baby. Next morning he got up, all the extension cords are wrapped up on his patio. He's standing out in the front sidewalk the next morning. She drives by, stops, thanks him for the electricity. And Rich just senses there's a you know a softening of attitude. He said, Listen, I feel bad about the lawsuit. Could we could we try to sit down this this evening and still work this out? She said, Yeah, I'd like to do that. They settled it. So oh, that's awesome. Just pray for some, Lord, can I pray for the, I had, I had one legal secretary just started making fresh bread for her boss, who was a really unkind, harsh boss. And every morning he came in, there's a fresh loaf of warm bread on his desk. It just softened him. So God's got so many wisdom principles, Jacob, so many powerful principles. And Christians just don't tap into this, this arsenal of wisdom and grace in the Bible.
0: Well, that's a beautiful story. I was just going to ask you to share a story that shows God's fingerprints. And I think you just did. I think that was, <laughs> that's, 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 yeah, it's just, a, it's such a touching story. Yeah. And if you would have waited, his opportunity to extend, you know, that, that peace offering would have um, expired.
1: Yeah. You know, what comes uh, to my mind as we're talking, and I, I don't know if it's God or just me, but this idea of he's hungry, thirsty, I, I'm just wondering, and maybe some clinics already do this. But if if a boyfriend dropped his girlfriend off and he's trying to force her to, to you know, get an abortion, he's sitting in the parking lot. What about having just a standard practice that anytime someone's parked out there, someone from the clinic walks out with a cup of a cup of coffee and a donut and says, hey, we know you're waiting out here. Just thought you might appreciate this. I mean, oh, just just yeah. something that's simple. That's simple. Who knows? Because here's the key. Yeah, here's the key. It's not so much the power of what we do. It's the little teeny things we do that God, through his Holy Spirit, can magnify the impact. It's the Holy Spirit, ultimately. So it's not even how brilliant my words are in debating. It's if I am speaking out of love for Christ, doing the best that I can, praying, Lord, my words are feeble. I don't know how to do it, but I know you're powerful. He can take the simplest little thing that I say or do, and he can supercharge it. Supercharge.
0: So one final question uh, that I can think of. So when, when someone's on the sidewalk of a Planned Parenthood or an abortion clinic, and and let's say that you know they're they're praying there um, on the sidewalk, and then the the Planned Parenthood escorts are possibly instructed to not dialogue. Right. What might be something good to say out loud, even though they may not respond because they may have been instructed to not respond. But what would be something good or what would be like a healthy conversation to to have? Like, would it be good to pray for them in a way that they can hear? Or does that almost come off as like belittling and maybe not full of humility? I'm not sure. Yeah.
1: you know, it's been a long time since I've been out there myself. I've got a lot of friends in my church are out there. They'd probably have a better I answer know. for that. But here's a couple of things come to mind. Number one, never underestimate the power of a smile. One of the things that we teach in our course is just the whole idea of just smiling. There's, God has wired us where smiles are significant. To just smile at somebody. And the main thing I'd be praying about is say, Lord, help me to love this person. Help me to love this person with the love of Christ and if you're filled if you're filled with the love of Christ toward that that escort person somehow then you're a more open channel for the love of Christ so i would say first of all lord i need i need help in my heart i i'm judging this person i'm bitter toward this person i want to condemn them and lord i confess that is sin and i i ask you to forgive me so please fill me to to full with the love of christ that it's overflowing so much it splashes on that person and one way is through my countenance just the look on my face and of course there's stories of martyred christians throughout history that the love of christ sh- I mean think of uh, stephen as they were stoning him his face was glowing okay it says it talks about his face it's like moses so the, our face our smile our countenance would be filled with love and compassion there may, and then they say, Lord, if there's something I can say right now, give me the words. And the Bible talks about that. Don't worry about it. You know, God will give you the words. So be praying. Give me the words, whether to be silent and just smile, whether to say something kind. I'd be hesitant to, to get really spiritual. I'm praying for you because that's going to sound like a judgment. It's going to sound superior. Um, yeah. It might. Here again, if your enemy is hungry, you could have a cooler or something there with some coffee or some donuts or something. And and just say, you know, I see you've been working really hard. It's cold out today. Can I offer you a cup of coffee? They'll probably say no, but the Holy Spirit can take that and just make them feel very convicted. Gosh, these people are so nice. And I don't know if you heard the recent report. There was a teenager that went to one of the Trump rallies expecting to be, and he's going to talk about his liberal um, politics. He's expecting to be attacked. He said, everybody was so nice to me. One of the ladies invited me to her Bible study. And I think we should surprise people with our graciousness. And so you might say something nice. Um, I would even go so far as this. I say, Lord, if you know it would be helpful, please create an opportunity for me to serve this person, to serve this. Now, maybe that means the person slips on the ice and goes down, and I'm the one that walks up and offers a hand to pick them up. You know, God can, he can do anything. And so I, I would just say Lord whatever I can do if just to pray just to smile just to be here uh, offer a donut offer offer this um, th- there's a marvelous movie I saw recently is it's one of the ones on racial reconciliation and it's a true story uh, a woman who was a very um, active uh, moving for racial change and racial justice and then a guy who was ahead of the kKk in their community were forced to work on a committee trying to find some ways to subdue some of the violence and all of this hostility between the two people until the woman found out that this man had a son with a mental disorder. who was institutionalized and he couldn't get, he was being moved out of a fairly decent place into a much worse place. The man was so concerned. She's the one that went down to the clinic and persuaded them to give this man's son a better room and a better rate and everything else. When he found out about it, I mean, this was unexpected love from an enemy. That's what makes it so powerful. We know we don't deserve it. He resigned. He was a leader of the local KKK. He resigned after that. He was so convicted by the love of someone he thought was his enemy. And so just never underestimate the power of love. And it doesn't work really instantly. Him. doesn't work instantly, but over time. And that's the message of the gospel you know, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that's the message well, of the gospel.
0: That might be a good stop, a good stopping point. I think that's sort of, I'll start the music right there. <laughs>
1: yeah. The only thing I would ask you to add to it, if you do as a follow-up or something, you just point sure. them to our academy, rw-academy.org, because we've got all three of the talks I gave at the um, CareNet are on there for free. Okay. Okay.
0: That sounds good. Yeah, I can add that to the description. Okay. And um, um, yeah. Well, this was really good. I I I really love the fact that you're just helping people fight less and build relationships, and yeah, and be able to avoid fights. Uh, like that's yeah, that's a that's a beautiful um, what what a blessing to, yeah, to just simply have less conflict and less anxiety and worry over. Mm-hmm. Over yeah, disagreement. That's yeah, yeah, what a what a great well, he, way to live.
1: Peace, peace is God's universal blessing. I mean that you see in the old testament, peace be with you. Peace be I mean, this is something God wants to give to us in our sin. We keep mucking it up, but he still wants to give us this gift of peace.
0: Oh, that's so good. Well, thank you, Ken, for yeah, for being on here. Really enjoyed yeah. hearing your stories and your wisdom. And yeah, I'm excited to share this because this is like, yeah, this is really healthy supportive, biblical uh, messaging.
1: Good. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity, Jacob.
2: Shepherd I shall not be in want I shall not be. He makes me lie down in the green. He leads me by quiet blue. Yeah, the walk through darkness Dallas, you are me, i Your protection and guidance Are comforting me everywhere